Welcome to the 352nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about mass death as everyday life in the pandemic with legal historian Mary Dujak. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 4th, 2021, there are 4,801,304 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Colin Jones Obituary. This appeared in The Guardian on October 1st, 2021. It was written by Peter Crookston. One line that always produced a laugh from audiences watching the film Billy Elliot was, what's best, to be a ballet dancer or to be a minor? The photographer Colin Jones, who's died aged 85 from COVID-19, would not have thought this such a funny question. He had worked in one of those worlds as a dancer, touring with the Royal Ballet, and had documented the other with superb photographs published in The Observer and The Independent magazines and in a book entitled Grafters, which appeared in 2002. He also did important work for the Sunday Times, in particular the Black House Project in the 1970s, leading one critic there to describe him as the George Orwell of British photojournalism. Colin became fascinated by the working lives of minors on his first assignment for the Observer after leaving the Royal Ballet in 1962. He was sent to cover some early pit closures in the Northeast and later told an interviewer, it may sound strange, but I found so many similarities between the lives of minors and ballet dancers. There was the same dependence on strength, fitness, and endurance, the same comradeship of a tight-knit community doing a job, and when they finish work, they're both physically exhausted and drenched in sweat though miners are covered in coal dust and their work is full of dangers. On a tour to Australia and New Zealand with the Royal Ballet in 1958, Colin bought his first camera, a Ricoflex, while on an errand in Sydney for Margot Fontaine. He immediately began taking photographs of the company's dancers, exercising at the bar and working in rehearsals. In 1961, he met Lynn Seymour, star of the touring company, and she accompanied Colin on some of his shooting expeditions when on tour into places such as Manila and the side streets of Tokyo. The greatest influence on Colin's photography was the Observer's arts photographer, Michael Pito, whom he met backstage at the Royal Opera House in the 1960s during the golden era of Fontaine, Rudolf Nureyev, Seymour, and Christopher Gable. Pito was a Hungarian emigre whose work Colin had always admired. Michael didn't take pictures in the way that the rest did. He could see the ballet for what it was, a lot of hard work. Many of his pictures were of exhausted dancers after the endless tedium of rehearsals in dusty church halls. Pito introduced Colin to the Observer's picture editor, Dennis Hackett. The Northeast assignment resulted in Colin's first big picture spread, astonishing images of men and women scrabbling for coal on a colliery waste tip near Sunderland and taking it home in sacks on the crossbars of old bicycles. Born in Poplar, East London, Colin was the son of a printer, George Jones, and his wife, Maud. For most of his early years, his father was away in the army, serving in the Burma campaign. With his mother and his older brother, Colin was evacuated to Essex. He was evacuated twice more, attending 13 schools while struggling with dyslexia. When he left school at 15, he had no qualifications, but after hearing a career advisor encouraging leavers to consider becoming dancers, he enrolled at a dancing school in the front room of a semi in New Eltham, Kent. 
His most successful work, begun in 1973, was the documentation of a group of mostly young black men who lived in a dilapidated terraced house in Islington, North London, known as the Harambee Project. Harambee is Swahili for pulling together. They were the children of the first generation of Caribbean immigrants who had been brought over to join their parents and had become alienated by the prejudice they experienced. Most were unemployed and some had criminal convictions. With his gentle and beguiling manner, he was able to persuade the young men to let him photograph them. Their patience was rewarded with a magazine cover story on the edge of the ghetto. The pictures were exhibited at the Photographer's Gallery in 1977 and in 2006 published as a book, The Black House. The accolade he valued above all others was a letter framed on his darkroom wall from the acclaimed photographer Bill Brandt about his 1960s portraits of gunslinging characters in a feud between rival scrap metal merchants in Fulham. Dear Colin Jones, I feel I must tell you how delighted I am with your future in yesterday's Sunday Times. I think they are the strongest photographs I have seen for a long time. Congratulations and best wishes. The obituary of Colin Jones, photographer and ballet dancer who died at age 85 from COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest. Mary Dujak is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Law at Emory University. Her most recent book is Wartime, an idea, its history, its consequences, which appeared with Oxford University Press. Her current book project argues that the culture of war death in the United States helps explain the decline of political restraints on the war powers. During the COVID era, she has been obsessing over the way a mass death experience has essentially been normalized. Mary Dudjak, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Yeah, so I'm calling in from, um, from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and Georgia is, uh, if you look at, if you happen to obsess over the data like I do, <laughs> and you look at the maps on the New York Times um, COVID page, uh, uh, Georgia is in the death zone, right? Those states in the South that have been experiencing uh, a, uh, more deaths, COVID deaths than other parts of the country. I know that Alaska is currently an area of crisis, but um, but right now I checked the data and uh, Georgia is sixth in the nation in deaths over the past seven days, um, sixth in hospitalizations. I think this is per capita. Um, and uh, actually I'm not sure if it's per capita or absolute numbers. It must be absolute numbers. Um, but um, ICUs had been full, um, but they are now better but there's still over 90% capacity. That means that, you know, if you get hit by a car, uh, you may or may not be able to be treated uh, at a hospital. Um, so, so Georgia is in a area of great danger. And in terms of the vaccination rate, I mean, those, this point, I guess we're pretty comfortable saying there's a causal relationship between where you find yourself and what the vaccine rate is, vaccination Abs rate is there. Absolutely, not only the vaccination rate, but our um, governor, um, Brian Kemp, uh, in his uh, wisdom has been, he's, he said, it's a good idea to wear a mask, but mask, but he's, he's, um, uh, uh, he's, he will not mandate masks and he doesn't want local governments to mandate masks and so uh, I teach at Emory, which is a private university, but at public universities in Georgia, uh, professors can't require students to wear masks in their classrooms. So this has led to real crises at Georgia public institutions with 
um, some uh, faculty members quitting um, because they, you know, why should they, you know, risk their lives um, when students won't uh, even wear masks in the classroom? I remember one story, and I don't want to get the details wrong here, but I think it was a professor, an adjunct professor, who was teaching at one of the Georgia uh, public universities and uh, was is a veteran. And in, in mid-class, the way the story said, he said, you know what, if you're not going to wear the mask, I'm out. And, and that was it for him. Right. He had been called in to teach. I read the same story. Called in to teach, uh, cover a class that was a requirement. And um, so he's basically helping out. Um, and, and, and sure enough, the students um, wouldn't, uh, some of the students wouldn't wear masks. And of course, he would have been at great risk because of his age if he got COVID. I've been asking people if they wouldn't mind sharing a, a memory that sort of encapsulates this time. And I know it's hard to maybe choose one moment in the pandemic, but I, I'd like to put the same question to you, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, for me, and I think it sort of explains the, in some ways, the dark tone of my at least initial writing, um, that the, the, the pandemic sort of coincided with regular everyday family tragedies. Um, and so it was this confluence that just led to this really dark time in my family. We lost a nephew, sudden and unexpected shocking death in the fall of 2019. Then we would remember him in the spring, right? Also in the spring, my, my you know, my, my mother-in-law had been living in a nursing home uh, and then began to decline. Um, and so my husband just happened to be in Rhode Island where she lived uh, in April and saw her the day before they shut down all the nursing homes. And Rhode Island was one of the states along with the state of Washington that really had crisis numbers at the beginning. And so my mother-in-law was dying. Um, the nursing home was shut down. Her husband, he's now 96 years old, living still in their home. Uh, wasn't able to see her every day as he had. Um, and so her death and the experience of that was just heavily affected by the growing crisis of the pandemic and the real difficulty that nursing homes had scrambling around trying to figure out how to control it. Um, and so, you know, that, that really sort of colored the beginning of the pandemic for me. And that actually led my husband and I to decide to spend a lot of uh, the first year of the pandemic actually in Rhode Island so that we could, you know, my husband wouldn't be able to fly up to see his dad, um, which is what he would have planned to do after Elizabeth, my mother-in-law, passed away. So we found a house, you know, right on the coast, and we um, tried to keep my father-in-law out of uh, Burger King. Uh, so we would make him breakfast every morning, a, a, the sort of our version of an egg McMuffin, only it had avocados on it and, and farm fresh bacon. And um, I would make it and my husband would drive it over and, and sit outside, even though it was winter, and, uh, and have breakfast with my father-in-law. So we ended up having really this very interesting and lovely uh, time uh, in Rhode Island, um, just you know, trying to keep my father-in-law alive, which we succeeded. Well, he succeeded at staying alive. And and really it was um, life-affirming for all of us. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm sorry for the tragedies your family faced. And, and, but in the way you told it, God, I hope you'll write that. I mean, the way you told it, to, to go from that, but then... Your job was to keep your father-in-law out of Burger King. It's tremendous. And there's Literally. so much. Yeah, no, but I, I get it. I mean, there's so much intergenerational um, care and scolding and um, anything that could be done, um, particularly at, at those days when the nursing homes and the elder care facilities were failing. I, mean, I don't think there's any other way to put yeah, it. That's right. You had to do that. Yeah. Um, I know there's another... Uh, question that I particularly wanted to ask you, I've asked a few guests about about numbers, and we're going to talk a lot about numbers today, but um, 
those, you know, from the flattening the curve and so people habituating themselves to graphics and then the death numbers, maybe now the vaccination numbers, although I don't see the same fascination with those. We have become um, numerically competent, I guess you could say, or we we talk about numbers a lot in the pandemic, but I often worry about the numbers, the, the ones we're talking about, and I, 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 I know you do as well. But I wonder what kind of numbers you pay the most attention to now. Well, you know, I mean, mostly I'm, I think about the limitations of numbers, right? And the, um, the need, as you do, I have to say, Scott, I so appreciate not just this program, but the way that you begin with the story of someone who has died. Um, because I think the numbers, focus on the numbers cause us to lose track of the human um, uh, dimension of the catastrophe. But um, I still, though, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sort of as much of a doom scroller as I was, you know, through the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but um, I do, um, I, I actually s still pay attention to the numbers I paid attention to from the beginning. I try to find what are the most accurate numbers for the infection rate where I am, the infection rate where people I care about are, um, and um, vaccination rates do matter, but they're not, they're so politicized um, that, and really all of the, the numbers, you know, you sort of wish they would have more of a motivating impact. I was interested in, um, you know, the display, which I would have loved to have gone to in Washington, D.C., of all the little flags, this artistic display, one for every death, and um, as if that could help us. So, so these exercises to try to help people understand how massive um, and devastating this um, pandemic has been. Um, so to, to me, the fact that mass, de mass death experience has become just an everyday event, and that we have sort of normalized it and incorporated it into our everyday experience. And then in places like Georgia, we're really encouraged to go on as if it wasn't still continuing. Um, so that people who are being more protective kind of feel like aliens, actually. Um, so there are these developing divisions in, in social life um, that may persist beyond the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, um, that's part of what I think about numbers. I, I think those I think are those themes are, we'll, we'll probably talk about all of those for the rest of our discussion today. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to legal historian Mary Dudjak. And um, Mary, I want to go back a little bit and talk about your 2012 book, Wartime, and maybe talk a little bit about the project and why you wanted to work on putting time itself in historical context, particularly the the sort of special place that historically Americans have carved out for something which they call wartime, because it really takes a close look at how, of course, how time is political, but also how time gets gets distorted and how sort of culturally we make particular times for things, which, I mean, as a historian reading this kind of thing, of course, is very affirming to me that we're on the right track to not treat time as a linearity and just say this ha things happen on a on a line going from here to here, but you really explored that. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah, the reason that I um, I did that book, it started with an essay and then Marilyn, my dear friend, the late Marilyn Young, ordered me to turn it into a book. Um, uh, and <laughs> who's gonna 
uh, that's, gonna, that's um, the best. Take, just taking <laughs> orders to write the book. That's the way. Yeah. Uh, but but really, I, I I sort of wrote that book by mistake because I was supposed to be writing the big book that I'm writing now, which is really about you know the sort of decline of of democratic engagement with American war politics, um, which I think is sort of at the core of enabling the forever war. Um, and uh, but. I just had to get my head around the problem of time. And time has a special importance in legal history, actually, and in how we think about law. Um, because the idea is, traditional idea is, there's two kinds of time. There's wartime and peacetime. And history consists of moving from one kind of time to another. And law is different in wartime and peacetime. Uh, so the, 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 uh, saying is, in times of war, law is silent. Um, and uh, the idea is that there's a swinging pendulum. During wartime, uh, security is, uh, is prioritized, rights are deprioritized, but don't worry because we'll switch from wartime to peacetime and then the pendulum will swing back. And once we ended up in the war on terror, of course, the same rhetoric appears that, you know, this is a wartime. So of course, we're going to have that pendulum swing. But um, with this conceptualization, the pendulum would inevitably swing back. But of course, wars aren't bound in time. Um, and security regimes don't recess. Um, instead, practices and laws sort of get built in, get repurposed in the aftermath of a conflict. Um, and so often what we expect is going to go away instead becomes embedded. So I, you know, I just sort of really went to the literature on time, which is spectacular. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of wrote about the way that, um, wartime is a cultural idea. It's not something about the nature of time or the nature of war. It's a set of ideas that we want to believe or don't. Um, and that that don't necessarily coincide with social practices. But it, your your uh, impetus to write that book was to try to approach this problem of forever war, which I, if, I, if I'm right, I mean you take that. To, I mean I could, that could go back pretty far if you wanted to, but motivated by September 11 and the changes to the homeland security state after September 11, or do you reach further back than that? Oh, further back, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I mean the. the classic argument about the decline in democratic restraints on war um, is that we ended the draft and so therefore the American people aren't engaged with war. And the draft um, and the end of the draft was tremendously important, but I will argue in the next book, um, if I ever finish it, uh, that, that that actually builds onto a pre-existing phenomenon. And um, should I sort of explain that? It, sure, I, I'd love to hear more I, about it. I when I sat when I sat down to actually now let, let me write the big book. I then said to myself, "Well, war is about killing and death, and how does does death figure in the narrative? Um, death is a quintessential experience in war. War accomplishes a purpose through the use of violence and killing." So, so how does death, how, how, what, what, how does death figure in the narrative? And so, uh, one thing led to another and, um, a confluence of, uh, of Thomas LeCur on the work of the dead. I, I had a chance to have coffee with him right before the book. He was just as he was finishing the book and sending it off to the printer. Uh, and Jugelman Faust, who I've never met, but whose book on death and civil war, I um, also became obsessed with. And so the two of them essentially required me <laughs> to rethink the whole narrative of the book um, so that my I begin actually with the civil war, which I never expected to write about, um, because uh, that's the experience that the United States lost. Luckily, we lost it uh, when war moved offshore. So basically, all of American war after the Civil War and wars with Native American tribes, all of American war was foreign war. 
And that meant that U.S. civilians did not experience the carnage of war. So the experience, I sort of narrate, the, as other people do, the civilian experience um, at Antietam. And that's the experience that in World War II, American civilians did not have, for example. So, so, so this sort of losing, and, and Ernie Pyle writes about it, mm-hmm. you know, that you know, in his last column, essentially railing against the public, for not seeing the dead scattered across the hillsides that you cannot understand because you didn't see it. Um, and, and so um, that absence of connection, direct connection with the experience of killing and, and, and dying and being vulnerable to death, um, that has um, affected American war politics. And I, I see it changing over time, it's not flat. And so, yes, it's different in World War One than it is in World War Two, um, but um, but 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 that's a, a sort of a, a dynamic that I think drives the narrative of the loss of political engagement with American war. Thank you so much for uh, going into that in detail. And the, and the book is Wartime, which is Mary Jack's 2012 book, and everybody should grab that book and look. And and you talked about. Drew Gilpin Faust's book, This Republic of Suffering, and and that one, um, and this whole collection of books, yours included, that you're talking about here, you know, it has made me more um, emboldened, I guess, to talk about disaster and time, because I think there's a similar dynamic at work. It's it's more contemporary because we have more of the state focused on disaster management now than we did. Let's say wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been the right terminology in the 19th century. Um, but this idea that there's special time for a disaster and then there's special time in which we're not experiencing disaster, and to and to actually try to understand what that means to make that claim, both as an administrative as a legal matter, but also as a cultural matter. And I think they're very similar. Maybe it is the same project ultimately in the end. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, so I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, I mean, COVID, I think people will talk about it in temporal terms, right? That there is this time within which the COVID pandemic happened, just as the, um, the, uh, the 1918, um, 19 flu. Um, so, uh, and on some level, that will be correct, right? There will be, uh, the onset of COVID-19, and hopefully someday it at least kind of subsides uh, into some manageable public health dimension. But um, but to but then the one question is, you know, what ends up counting as a um, uh, crisis that then calls upon the, uh, the state for the level of mobilization to meet a crisis? and has the sort of politically mobilizing dimension, right? So those are two things that can come out of a crisis for war or for pandemic, um, that, that the state's mobilized to deal with it, um, and that the, the public is sort of mobilized to engage with it. Um, I mean, the engagement is splintered now because of the Trump administration and, and the aftermath, but, um, but this idea that certain huge social problems um, fall within the category of crisis that requires this mobilization um, leaves aside things like the Flint water crisis um, and the poisoning of children in American cities um, with lead um, and other kinds of ongoing crises that affect certain populations. Um, so, uh, I, I think that before we kind of turn COVID-19 into a magic and special moment in history uh, that's held aside uh, for the kind of mobilization that we wish we would, would see here, I think we also have to ask ourselves why this is special and why certain other incredibly deadly and destructive crises, again, like the Flint water crisis, don't reach the same level um, of public attention and mobilization. I, and, and sort of Flint as an example 
of the poisoning of other children in other cities um, by lead. It tends to be, you know, in communities of the poor. Uh, that question is such an important one to me. And, and it, I wanted to ask you about that because uh, war metaphors have been employed throughout the pandemic, and particularly early on. Uh, this was the language that the news media and elected officials um, and scholars to reached for. And I had very mixed feelings about that. I'm sort of curious how you felt about that, too, because I felt like we have a lot of metaphors also to talk about care. And so a pandemic doesn't have to be a war. But the reason for my mixed feeling is that I do know what the powers of war can unleash for the state. Again, it's we're in a bit of a bind. We've created these special powers, war powers um, that do emphasize speed and reach of the government and executive action. And so I, I guess I wonder how you felt in that moment. And for me, it was an assumption, okay, well, I may not like it that they call the pandemic a war, but at least we're going to see a vigorous response. And then nothing. Right. Not as much as I wanted. I, th I, I think that it's um, interesting and really highly ironic and problematic that war is the special thing, right? War is the special thing that by definition calls for you know, strong um, government um, response, including sometimes oppressive government policies. Um, and isn't it interesting that a country that only goes to war in other places of the world um, would think of war as this special thing that calls forth um, especially um, important government powers? So, so again, we have this this sort of long experience of um, the U.S. using its war power elsewhere. And I think that enables Americans uh, who are generally are privileged to be, unless they're serving in the military, right, are privileged to be incredibly ignorant about what the experience of war is actually like. Um, so I think that for me, I mean, so that's, it's a different kind of problem with the in invocation of war, but, but that, that to me is, um, is just, um, uh, a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it reinforces the fact that, um, Americans, um, can have certain feelings about U.S. war that derive from the fact that they don't have to suffer from it. Hmm. I mean, that's a, such a remarkable statement. And, and again, I guess we'd be searching for that time in which you would say Americans made a shift from when something you would call wartime meant a much broader sacrifice of resources and of kin. And, and we make that move into a, into a different sort of a sort of reality. And maybe it must be before September 11th. I don't know when you would, I should ask you when you would put that, um, that transition on the board, but it's as you describe it, I see this more clearly now. I mean, I would thank you for that because we're reaching for a war metaphor at the beginning of the pandemic. We're talking about something that the great majority of people in the United States have not experienced and don't have family members who are even in the line of fire. So why would we reach for that? Right. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, I think of Jim Sparrow's great book, Warfare State. I mean, even though most Americans were isolated from the experience of killing and dying in World War II, Right. But I mean, my my father actually got drafted into World War Two, but then drafted into the Manhattan Project. That's another story. Mm. Um, but um, but Jim Sparrow's book sort of shows the way there's was such deep engagement with the American state. Right. Um, so that there was this broad and deep mobilization. And um, and in, in many ways that acculturated Americans, whether it was just, you know, the need to um, uh, follow, well, I write in the wartime book, Daylight Savings Time, which was a war measure. Um, it was a reminder um, that they were essentially serving their country at war. Um, so, so World War II, because of the deep domestic mobilization, the need to really turn out the... Um, the uh, material in, in the factories um, that led to much greater um, American experience with the project of war than, for example, the, 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 the Korean War. 
One more thing about this I wanted to touch on before I ask you about some of your more recent writings about this pandemic, and that's the role of September 11 in this. And again, people will have to cast their memory back to those earlier days, the pandemic in the United States. And I think it happened in other parts of the world, but it particularly happened in the United States, where people were reaching for death count metaphors to try to grasp the enormity of the problem. And September 11 was one that I think people reach to because it's recent, it's shared pretty broadly culturally, and it sort of conjured, I think, for a lot of people, if they can dissociate it from the Iraq war, it conjured a moment of some kind of American solidarity. I don't want to overstate that because many Americans, particularly um, Muslim Americans, did not feel that. But I, I do think it was there and it was vital. I wonder how you saw that sort of invocation of September 11 in that moment early in the pandemic. Um, yeah, well, sort of two, two, two things. Let me sort of say a word about September 11th. Um, uh, for m many Americans, um, you know, the, re the, audit, the replay over and over again of the buildings falling. Um, and so I remember myself seeing um, the first uh, tower fall live on CNN. Um, when I was, I was in California and just thinking about what the numbers must be, right? And, uh, and how many people uh, lost their lives in those minutes. Um, now, the people who died in the World Trade Center buildings were not only Americans. Uh, there were people from, I forget the number, but many different countries um, who lost their lives. And so September 11th was in many ways a global event. Um, and it generated not just a level of some level of solidarity, at least for a moment in the United States, but also around the world. Again, this didn't last very long, but people right in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, people took flowers and candles to U.S. embassies around the world and, and American flags in Germany and in, in, um, in Middle Eastern countries, um, in, uh, in um, uh, Asia, uh, all over the world, and cried. Um, and so there was, again, there were, there were differences, obviously, but um, there was this outpouring of global support and solidarity and sadness. Now, this could have been mobilizing, right? This could have been a moment when the world came together to crack down on terrorism, to think seriously about our common interest in aviation security, right? But, uh, but instead, there was the turn to war. So there, there were, it wasn't that war was automatically determined by the buildings falling. War was a choice. And then once Bush, you know, took the microphone at ground zero, to me, that was the moment. Um, and what happened was the country rallied behind a president who had not before had all of the country behind him because of the disputed 2000 election, right? At that moment, he became the country's president. Everyone was scared and everyone rallied, not everyone, but uh, much of the country rallied behind him. And, and so there, it there was a choice to turn it into a war metaphor. Um, and the cost of that, especially with the run up with the Iraq war, was this moment of global sympathy and solidarity um, that could have been used for something that, that was positive. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to legal historian Mary Dudjak about mass death and 
everyday life as part of the pandemic. Uh, Mary, I want to come to something that you wrote last summer, and it's a piece titled The Numbers, Encountering Casualties in the Era of COVID-19. You can find this in the journal Diplomatic History. It appeared June 30th um, of this year. Sorry, I had the, I thought it was last summer. It was this summer. Um, and um, it's a great piece. Everyone should read this piece. And you start it in a way that really appealed to me um, for reasons you mentioned a moment ago. You talk about encountering an obituary of Cosmas Mugaya. How did Cosmas Mugaya enter your consciousness? Well, um, you know, this was, I'm, you know, I told you at the beginning of the, of the um, discussion about how this was really a dark period in my own family. And uh, so I was actually up in Rhode Island in July when I started it. I was asked to write by the editors of Diplomatic History, Petra Gooda and Ann Foster had this brilliant idea of asking a bunch of people to write about how the pandemic affected their work. Um, and so there's this extraordinary group of essays and um, uh, mine, I, my gift to you all is that I um, used my research funds to make it open access. So there's no paywall. Um, so I was thinking, what do I have to say? I can't write anything. <laughs> and then I woke up one morning, I'm really pretty much in the middle of the night. And, and, uh, and I've been thinking about this obituary, which I found just through my regular doom scrolling. And it was written by, um, and, and, and that allowed me to write. Um, and so Paul Berliner is an ethnomusicologist. I think he taught at the University of Chicago. And he wrote this beautiful remembrance of Cosmos Magaya, who was a Mbira master. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's a kind of instrument that is um, uh, that is used in his home country, Zimbabwe. And he was a global, you know, presence um, among, um, you know, people who, you know, use those instruments. And he had done, had, 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 um, he'd gotten to know Paul uh, Berliner, and he had actually played uh, uh, a remembrance um, after 9-11. So he was uh, someone who, through his music, had been profoundly healing. And I just found this um, obituary to be so moving. And so I started by writing about him. And that allowed me to write the essay. But to me, it was just, and it always, I mean, it still is so tremendously important to pay attention to people, um, specific people um, who have lost their lives or specific people whose lives have been tremendously changed. Um, uh, so many people are affected by long, uh, long COVID symptoms, right? And so there's all sorts of impacts and we're all gonna be living with this aftermath and we need to remember them and we need to count for them. Um, so that's what got me started um, writing. Um, I actually sent my essay to Paul Berliner um, and he sent it to Cosmas Magaya's family. Well, I'm glad you did that. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope they found some comfort in, in that. I don't know if you heard back anything. No, I haven't. But actually, I haven't been in touch with Paul Berliner since um, it was in draft. So you're reminding me. So I'm going to send him the published version and um, maybe I'll hear more. And one of the things you really explore in the, in the piece, which we were talking about earlier related to some of your earlier work is the, um, the problem of seeing the dead. So this, again, a sort of problem of connection with a mass death event. And you 
cast our memory back to, again, that period of time early in the pandemic, although now it's played out in multiple different places across the United States and around the world, but this was located particularly in, in New York, I think we think of it mostly, where the number of dead was moving faster than the metabolism of it was much faster than the crematoria or mortuaries could deal with. And so they were using mass graves. And, and you wrote, and at Hart Island particularly, there were mass graves which the government was not keen for people, for maybe obvious reasons, to explore, uh, to know about. But, you know, photographs were taken and people did see them. I saw them. I know you saw them. You wrote about this. You said at Hart Island and elsewhere, so that's where the mass grave was, as in, the, as in a slaughterhouse, unseen workers handle the death we, will, we don't see. Concealment in the pandemic, you wrote, may seem cultural, in keeping with cultural sensibilities about respect for the dead body, but the politics of sight is always enabled by power and interest. So it's a complicated idea, and one was hoping you could say a little bit a bit more there, because it's not only cultural in the sense that we want to maybe shield people, ourselves or other people, vulnerable people, maybe children, from the sight of death, um, but there's also a politics behind that. And I wonder if you could say more about it. Right. Let me, um, I mean, I think there's more to say than I've, I've thought through. Um, so let me say something about it in relation to war and then circle back. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, imagine if we could walk among the remains of the, um, mistaken drone strike in Afghanistan right? Uh, during the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, there was a drone strike. And basically what happened was they were following the wrong car um, and uh, civilians were killed, including a number of children. Um, we can't see that. We can't smell it. It's not part of our neighborhood. Imagine um, how Americans might react to, I mean, basically mistakes always happen in war. Um, so it's not that it was a mistake. Um, mistakes always happen in war. Um, but this experience of what war is, is something that's deeply foreign to American civilians. So that we only experience it by hearing numbers like what political scientists do, many of them anyway, is they count numbers of American casualties in war and they compare it with um, with what happens in elections to determine what number of deaths Americans can bear before they start becoming more anti-war. Well, um, numbers um, <laughs> are this abstraction, right? And even, uh, you know, numbers don't capture um, what the experience of war is and how war affects a society and how war, um, you know, I mean, for if you think, again, um, Ernie Pyle's writings, um, imagine if you could, you know, I think if we bring the senses to the experience, it's not just seeing, it's smelling, hearing, um, touching, um, if you, well, Daniel Inouye, when he was a teenager on the island of Hawaii, uh, was called in to help after Pearl Har the Pearl Harbor bombing mm -hmm. and sent into a school room, uh, no, sent into a house that had been bombed um, and said, try to put the pieces of one body, just one body in each box. And, uh, and he would have tasted it because he would have ingested the smoke. Mm -hmm. um, so the experience of war um, affects all of the senses and you can't capture that in a number um, so that the numbers provide this sanitized measure that is completely divorced from the experience. Um, and um, so um, I feel like I've sort of gotten far away from the point, but um, uh, the uh, this is one of the reasons why um, looking to the tables 
of COVID figures, um, you know, it's shocking that just the abstraction of numbers has become normalized. So it's part of right, daily right. life. We look at the numbers and think, gee, should I go to the grocery store today with my mask on or not? Um, but uh, we, 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 we don't have a purchase on, on the broader experience. Back to the issue, your sort of issue about, um, about controlling what we see. Um, so even the site of coffins um, was obscured when some guy sends up a drone to take pictures at Heart, of Heart Island and gets arrested for the crime of sending up an aircraft outside of an airport, a very obscure crime that no one had right. ever heard before, right? right. Um, but, but similarly, uh, photographers who covered the Vietnam War said it was easier to shoot Vietnam than it is to shoot the pandemic because we can't see anything. Right. Um, and so we think of it as it's in part out of respect for the bodies, but the bodies at Heart Island, they aren't feeling this absence of sight, right? Um, and they're also obscured and in coffins. Um, but what's most profoundly protected is American social life, able to right, go right. on um, calmly, you know, as usual, um, let's not scare Americans out of the mall, for example, if we want to keep uh, commerce going. I just want to follow up on that, and I'm going to show an image here, um, and even my impulse to want to warn people about this uh, before I put it up says something, but this is a very arresting image from an article published in the New York Times Magazine in the spring of 2020 by Maggie Jones with extraordinary images by the photographer Philip Montgomery. And I'm just going to bring this up because I um, would like to get your your sense of it. I think it very much speaks to what we've just been talking about. And this is an image. So the article is um, about a funeral home and the extraordinary links that this one family-owned funeral home um, went to to deal with this surge, what came to be called the surge, another sort of military metaphor. And this image is one that I, I wanted, I guess in a sense, I wanted to just look at it and think about it again, because it really stopped me in my tracks when I first saw it. It was doing something that I don't, as you said, I mean, as social life just went on so people could get back to the mall, um, this stands in your way, I think. I wonder, what you, you know, if this is an, a, a type of image, I mean, I guess I have two questions for this. What sort of generally what you think about this kind of news coverage um, and this kind of photography, but also maybe this is speculative, but if we were to see more of this, or if this was more central to the culture of grappling with the COVID pandemic, do you think the policy outcomes would somehow have been different? Well, um, this story was, and the photography was tremendously powerful. And, um, and this is basically the kind of photography that, um, you know, these, uh, former war photographers said they couldn't get. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about live people in the hospital, of course, there are privacy, um, important privacy interests, but, um, you know, um, we're so far into the pandemic now. I thought, you know, during that dark summer of 2020, this is what people needed to see, that we needed to have more coverage like this. We needed to stop hiding it. Um, and we needed to talk about individual people. We needed to have family members, um, on television more often um, talking about what had happened to their family. Um, and uh, we needed to collectively mourn, right? Um, you know, not just mourn, but mobilize. I mean, to me, the fact that we have such an incredibly, I mean, we're, we're ground zero, the United States is ground zero for deaths in the world. Um, and uh, to have the American people accommodate this, right? 
not be up in arms. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that that happened and we could talk about that separately. But I, I really thought um, for the first few months at least that we needed to see those pictures and that would more and that would make a difference. Now, I'm frankly, I'm not sure. Um, I do think that having um, uh, Trump as president um, helped determine um, much of the path um, of uh, the, the sort of political and cultural reaction. Um, it's possible that if we'd had a, a more compassionate um, conservative president, that things could have worked out profoundly differently regardless of what party the president was from. Um, but, you know, we had this highly unusual, unstable, um, you know, I don't want to use the words that are coming to me, but um, that had a tremendous impact on, on the culture of the pandemic in the United States, um, enabling, you know, huge swaths of Americans to be in complete denial. Um, so I think that if I was going to pick one causal factor, that would be it. I think historians will come up with a lot more nuanced and smart analysis over time. But uh, really, I I did think we needed those pictures. We needed more of them. And now I have no idea once we got started this way, if anything could have changed the direction. I just want to stay with this for a second because disinformation and conspiracy thinking, which is not new in American life, but is particularly um, effective throughout the pandemic in, in confusing people as to the nature of the pandemic and the, the truth and the truth of it. Um, one of the things that we've heard throughout that unfortunately I've even heard in discussions with family is I don't believe the numbers. I think the numbers are inflated, I think, and then fill in the blank. Whoever, whatever, you know, malefactor is involved, this person wants me to change the way I'm living. And so they're taking this pandemic. It might be bad, but they're making it much worse than it is. Um, and early on, we heard that in terms of, again, coming back to the numbers, this is just a bad flu season. When it's all done, the number of dead will be about the same as a bad flu season. So why are you making us close the schools and lock down and and everything else. But we slipped past that very early on. And yet it persisted, that kind of disbelief and denial. And I mean, I study American history the same way you did. And frankly, I've been, I've been surprised. I, I wouldn't think I'd ever say I'd be surprised by anything in, in American capacity to um, deny uh, reality, but this has taken me by surprise, frankly. Yeah, and there's also, I think, what I think of as magical thinking among people who aren't sort of, you know, going for the dis disinformation. And, you know, people think, I'm healthy, I ride my bike, you know, I'll be fine. I mean, my 96 year old father in law was saying that. <laughs> You know, retired Coast Guard captain, you know, he's in pretty good yeah. shape for 96, but he's 96, right? So magical thinking, people just think they'll be okay. And I think that especially among kind of, well, I shouldn't say especially among younger people, um, because I think it's not all age driven, you know, people who go to concerts, people who want to go to the bars. Um, and, and, you know, hey, I'm a recluse all the time. So, you know, <laughs> I, I know some some folks can't abide that lifestyle and need to have much more social interaction. So I understand and respect that. You know, I think that there are are lots of of reasons why um, people will take trips or um, or engage in activities that, and some of them are just understandable, you know, they needs to live human life in a way that allows them not to be depressed every morning. So I wanted to um, just sort of come to one more thing on this. We're almost out of time in my COVID calls discussion with Mary DeJack, but you mentioned earlier the, um, so I want to talk about memorials for a second. You, you mentioned earlier, and I have, wish I could see it too, the memorial that was at the 
the mall in Washington, D.C., the flags. And the um, curator of that exhibit uh, announced, I think, yesterday that the, she's stopping. So they, you know, they, it was there for a certain period of time. And it was there while that number went over 700,000. And all the photographs I saw were, they're staggering because you, it's another way to apprehend the scale. It isn't just a number on a chart, but you actually see the physicality of it. And I think about that in terms of the Vietnam Memorial and the power of, of the numbers on the wall or Arlington National Cemetery, both war memorials. And so reaching again for a war kind of memorial, the right Washington, D.C., a, a flag, you know, not a patriotic gesture necessarily, but still a flag, um, and reaching for the power of that. And I think it worked, but at the same time, I... I wonder, you know, and particularly in light of what you've written in our conversation today, if that's going to do the work that I want a memorial to get done, which is to have people actually stop and think about what needs to be learned from this pandemic and keep it from happening again. And to me, it comes back to maybe Cosmos Magara and the obituary that, that a few well-chosen stories may be the kind of power, may have the kind of narrative power necessary to shake people a little bit and say, no, this really happened. Yeah, I, th I actually think we probably need both. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Arlington because, you know, you just go to Arlington National Cemetery and, and how can you not just be um, just overwhelmed by the death? Um, that's represented there. Um, and so also, if we could go and see the flags in Washington, D.C., we would be overwhelmed um, by those flags. Um, but it's, I think that because numbers are abstractions um, and, uh, and numbers don't really help us to see the real impacts um, to have some purchase on the suffering um, is, I think, I think really important. Um, so, you know, again, that's why that story where you showed the picture was so tremendously helpful and important. Um, and other individual stories like Paul Berliner's obituary of um, Cosmas Magaya, um, they help us to see the human toll of the virus that every person isn't going to care about it. But um, for heaven's sakes, if we can't get a social movement to actually control this virus, could we at least have more people be moved uh, and reflect on a regular basis about the precise individuals uh, that we have all lost in this world, not just this country, um, from this virus. Um, so um, I don't know what social change that might generate, but um, at least that might be a starting point of some kind of community that might be healing. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me for the next COVID Calls. In fact, I will be behind the scenes. We're going to have a guest host on, uh, it's going to be on Tuesday with Esther Chernak. Excuse me, I'm going to be on Wednesday with Esther Chernak, epidemiologist and physician at the Drexel University School of Medicine, and of course, a, a frequent guest on COVID calls. So please do, do join me and I'll put up announcements for that. The next COVID calls on Wednesday with Esther Chernak. And I want to thank my guest, uh, Mary Dojak, for this time and for your work. And please keep working because we need it. And for the illumination today and the discussion, Mary, thanks a million for this time. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who watched. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. <laughs>